listen, what God does at youth camp is real. And it's meaningful and it's lasting. Uh, in 1995, between my junior and senior years of high school, I finally decided at a youth camp that I was going to stop living for myself and I was going to start living for Jesus. And in 28 years, I haven't changed my mind and it has changed everything. In 1998, speaking at my first youth camp 25 years ago, I felt like God was really calling my heart once again into ministry. And when I surrendered to that call because of a youth camp, my life has never been the same. In 2010, Danielle and I were at a youth camp where God really solidified for the final time um, our call to leave what we were doing and to start the church that I now pastor. So when I think about youth camp, the moments in my history spiritually that are anchor points for me have all been at youth camp. And some of your kids have experienced that this week, and we are like really, really glad and grateful that you trusted us with them for a little bit. Um, I don't know that all of them are in here. These two guys are. Becca, Becca may have left to control the chaos outside. Um, Zach and Ben and Becca, thank you. Thank you guys for your leadership. They did an incredible job this week getting our kids there safely, getting our kids back safely. So is Becca not in the room? So it's her birthday today. She's 34. She asked me not to say anything about it. But now that she's, she's not in here, so when you see her on the way out, wish her a happy 34th birthday. Um, hey, just some little family business before we jump into our, our Bible study time today. Um, starting Sunday, August 27th, we will be moving to three Sunday morning service times instead of two. Um, even today, we're kind of a little cramped for space at the 1030, and we're kind of still in the middle of summer. So August 27th, we'll move to 8 a.m., 9.30 a.m., and 11 a.m., um, we're hoping that everyone at 8.30 and everyone at 10.30 doesn't say 9.30 is better. Uh, we're hoping that some at 8.30 will come at 8, some at 10.30 will come at 11. Uh, but know that that time is coming. Uh, this spring, we had services where we had less than five parking spots empty at our 10.30 service, which we knew um, tells the community that might come a few minutes late, we don't have any room for you to go someplace else. That never is going to be our message to our community. We always want to have seats for people who need what Jesus is doing at our church. So three services that will be starting here in a couple weeks. Find your new service time and your new service spot, and we'll fire up from there. If you have your Bible today, we're in Matthew 26. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, everything I read is going to be on the screen, so it's going to be super easy to follow along. For those of you who are mom and dads who came because your student invited you today, welcome. Thanks for being here. Maybe grandmas, grandpas um, who came because your kids asked you to come today on Camp Sunday. Thank you for being here. We're in the middle of a series at our church, a Bible teaching series called It Is Finished. Um, we are not just finishing the book of Matthew. Our church has been studying these 28 chapters for three years. But we are moving towards the end of Jesus' ministry mission where he will say from the cross, it is finished. And as we walk towards, um, as we walk through the final five days of his ministry life, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Resurrection Sunday, we're just looking at who Jesus is and what Jesus is saying to his followers. Last week, I did an entire message on Judas Iscariot. I told our church, I've never in 25 years of ministry preached a message on Judas Iscariot before. Um, I was shocked how much I learned and was challenged. I've heard from so many people after last week, they were shocked. They've never studied the life of Judas Iscariot, how challenged they were by the message. I only say that to say if you weren't here last week, you might catch that one online. I don't often ask you to go back and watch an old one, but that one seemed to be really impactful. So maybe catch the one on Judas Iscariot later this week if you can. Today we're going to be on Thursday night, and we're between dinner, we're between the Lord's Supper because it's the first Sunday of the month. We'll close our services by taking communion together, but we're between the initiation of the Lord's Supper and Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what we're going to step into is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And I want you to listen closely, like lock in for just a minute. 
The entire conversation is about what you do after you fail spiritually. Like Jesus, between the Last Supper and his arrest in Gethsemane, is going to have this probably between 9 and midnight, this three-hour discussion with his disciples. And the whole content of the discussion is when you fail, when you bail, when you struggle spiritually, here's how you're going to come back. If people were to ask me, Christian, what makes youth camp so special? I would say it's that conversation. Youth camp is the place that we get with teenagers and say, regardless of what your last year has looked like, the message from Jesus is always the invitation to come back. And most Christians, when presented with the option to come back to Jesus, most Christians will come running. And when I look at Matthew 26 and I think about youth camp, I look at this and I have to ask myself this question. Is this conversation that when you fail, when you bail, when you struggle, you can always come back? Is this something that we just tell to teenagers or does like maybe the entire church need that conversation? Like, do maybe moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas and uncles and aunts, like, do maybe young adults, like, is it just teenagers who need to hear when you fail, when you bail, when you struggle, come back? Or does, like, everyone in church need to hear that? And I thought, well, because Jesus says it, because he's talking to adults, maybe this message is as much for adults as it is for kids. Maybe you don't need youth camp, although I think you'd be better for it if we went to one. Um, We might all have to sleep for a week because we're getting a little older and crowd surfing's different at 45 than it is at 35, <laughs> if you were watching that video. Um, but the message of youth camp, that if you've failed, if you've bailed, if you've struggled, you can come back, I think, is as necessary for adults as it certainly is for students. So that's what we're going to talk about in Matthew 26. I'm going to pray before we jump into our uh, Bible reading time. I'm going to ask God to speak to our hearts, and then we'll run through our Bible study today. Would you just bow your heads, <sighs> kind of take a deep breath, settle your soul into this moment? God, would you speak to us from your word today, very specifically, God, for Christians in the room who have failed, who have bailed, who have struggled, and for some reason you brought them here today. Let them hear your invitation to come back. That's my prayer, and God, I ask it in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So picture the timing, picture the Easter story in your head. We've left the upper room. We're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. We'll end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here's the conversation that happens. What this conversation is going to show us is five things that separate followers of Jesus from Jesus and the ministry of Jesus to people who are walking through those five things. The first is relational distance. We're going to see that relational distance or growing distant in your walk with Jesus can separate you a little bit. Now, sometimes people in a relationship with Jesus drift away. Maybe that's your story. However, most times... Something happens that shakes our faith, and we choose not to walk away, but to run away. That's the disciples in Matthew chapter 26. Something's going to happen, and they are going to choose not to walk away, but they're going to choose to run away. Look at verses 31 and 32 of Matthew 26, if you have your Bible. It says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I'm going to go ahead of you, into Galilee. Now, these disciples had been shaken and comforted. Now they had to be shocked. They had been shaken a few hours earlier because Jesus sat around having dinner and he said, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me and they're going to kill me because of you. They were all shaken. Everyone wanted to know, it's not me, is it? Even Judas was like, it's not me, is it? And Jesus was like, yeah, it's you. What you did is going to be really bad for me. And you would hear Jesus say in our message last week, it would have been better for you not to have been born. Pretty strong words. 
So they were shaken by the thought that one of their own was going to betray Jesus. But then they were comforted because Jesus took the communion elements, the, for us the, the cup of wine and um, that matzah, that cracker-like bread. And he said, you know, in the Old Testament, you took the Lamb of God and we celebrated Passover and it was a picture of God rescuing you. But I'm God's real rescue. So from this point forward, it's not going to be lambs and holidays. From this point forward, you're going to have a personal relationship with the God of the universe through me. So their faith had been shaken, but then it had been comforted. But now Jesus makes this shocking statement. Oh, by the way, before you go to bed tonight, all of you are going to have abandoned me. And then he says something absolutely wild. Um, but after you're done, let's reconnect. Let me ask you a spiritual question. Is this how we understand the heart of Jesus as followers of Jesus? Do we understand as followers of Jesus the heart of Jesus that Jesus would say, you're going to have a hard day. You're going to have a hard night. You're going to have a hard season. You're going to have a tough year of school. You're going to have a hard four years at college. Do we picture Jesus saying, you're going to fail, you're going to bail, you're going to struggle, and then picture him saying, and when you're done, let's hook up. Let's go to Galilee. I think because we live in a world that doesn't just imply that they will unfriend us and cancel us if we don't comply, that we think Jesus does that too. I think we hear Jesus say, if you fail, if you bail, if you struggle, forget you. I'm done. Because our world doesn't just imply. Sometimes they explicitly state, if you vote for him, you are not invited to Thanksgiving dinner. Sometimes our world explicitly states, if you do not protest here, then you are this type of person. Sometimes our world has stated, and we've all had it happen within families the last three or four years, if you wear a mask, don't show up. If you don't wear a mask, don't show up. Yada, yada, yada. We live in a world that doesn't just imply that they're going to unplug if we don't please them. They explicitly state it. Do it the right way or be gone forever. That is not the conversation Jesus has with his disciples. Jesus says, every one of you is going to fail tonight. When you're done, let's hook up in Galilee. Is that how you picture Jesus talking to you, knowing about you and your time with him as you follow him? You know, when I look at why students come running back to Jesus, for me it is often just the fact that they can, and when they know that, they already want to. They just didn't know that they were aware of it in the first place. The call of Jesus to those who have become relationally distant from Jesus is this, come back to Jesus. He doesn't even slap their hands. He says, you're all going to fall tonight. When you're done, let's hook up in Galilee. The call of Jesus to those who become relationally distant to Jesus is come back to Jesus. Let me ask you this question. Where's your rallying point when you fail, when you bail, when you struggle? Where are you planning to reconnect? We were in Jerusalem a few weeks ago with um, our next-gen missions trip, and we walked all of our kids when we went from the kind of the new city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem proper, to the old city, the ancient city of Jerusalem. We walked them in the Jaffa Gate. It's really easy to see. It's really easy to find. It's really easy to get to. It's really easy to say. And I stood up on a bench in front of the kids, and I said, if and when you walk into the tunnels and alleyways of the Arab quarter and the Christian quarter and the Jewish quarter and the Romanian quarter, if at any point you get lost and separated from the group, all you got to know is Jaffa Gate. This will be our rallying point. This is a safe place. This is a well-lit place. This is a place where you can get transportation. This is a place where your phone can work. Um, when you get separated, this is where we're going to reconnect. Do you know that Jesus is trying to say that to you? In your walk with God, when you wander off, 
we'll meet again in Galilee. For many of our students this week, that was youth camp. Youth camp is their annual Galilee to be able to say, I may have failed, bailed, struggled this year, but Jesus, you always said you would reconnect to me. You always said that I could come back to you. Watch this. Some of you 20 years ago, if you were listening really closely, would have heard Jesus say this. Because it's 16, 17, 18, 22, 23, 24, something happened and you kind of unplugged from following Jesus. It's been 20 years. If you were listening closely enough, Jesus might have said something like this. Um, Going to be a rough two decades? I'll see you August 6th at Journey. I'll be there. I'll be there when you're ready to come back and let's reconnect. See, that's some of your story that you've grown relationally distant. But Jesus is saying like, hey, I'm so, like, I'm so glad you're back. Please feel the heart of Jesus and what he's talking to his disciples about in Matthew 26. Number two, we see some people grow separated from Jesus because they have what I call a practical denial. So what do you mean by practical denial? Let me read a couple verses and then I'll explain it. Peter replied, Jesus, even if everyone else falls away on account of you, I won't. I never will. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. Like before the sun comes up, you'll disown me three times. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I'll never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now, we often forget that last line. We think Peter is the only one who said that he wouldn't deny Christ and did deny Christ according to Matthew 26. They all said, we'll die before we disown you. And boy, by midnight, they were gone. No doubt, Peter and the disciples meant what they said. No doubt that they did not hold up their end of the bargain. No doubt they meant it when they said it. No doubt they did not live it. And here's what I call practical denial. When we compare our spiritual lip service to our spiritual life service, many of us practically deny that Jesus is our spiritual leader. We say it, and we mean it when we say it. But as soon as we get away from it, it's very, very clear that Jesus is not practically the leader of our lives. As we go to three services, one of the, one of the things that, that, I've, that I wish we'd one of the reasons I wish we didn't have to go to three services is the way that we do two now kind of allows our entire church to see each other between services. And a couple of years ago, we used to have five services at two different locations, and we literally had hundreds of people who went to our church who were friends with people who went to our church who didn't know they went to our church. Like, they were inviting each other to our Christmas services, and they're like, I already go to that church. And it's like, well, you know, 13 Christmas services, I guess I didn't see you. But something else happened that to me, tells me that we're both fulfilling our mission, but also is a bit of a challenge for me as a pastor. When our church moved from across the atrium into this building, all of a sudden our church began to see each other. They began to see who went to our church. And I can't tell you how many dozens of times I heard this. Hey, I saw someone across the atrium today who goes to Journey who I had no idea went to Journey. And then it was followed up by this. Actually, I was shocked that they went to church at all. I had that conversation a dozen times. I saw somebody across the atrium that not only was, I, I had no idea they went to our church. I had no idea they were a Christian, and I know them pretty well. That's somebody who practically denies that Jesus is their leader. In here, maybe very clear to everyone, oh yeah, they love Jesus, but out there, and I know them well, you would have never known that they love and follow Jesus. That's practical denial. That was all of the disciples in Matthew chapter 26. Now, one of the things you're not going to find from this group of kids wearing white down here, by the way, they, like in the early service, this, was the, this entire block of seats was where they slept or sat. Um, they were pretty tiresome, like kind of half and half. Um, you are not going to have to worry about this separation from these kids because 
one thing that I've learned that this generation is not going to do, they're not going to be hypocrites. It, like to them, is like the worst thing ever to say they love Jesus, but to not really love Jesus. Um, this crew, I think, has watched generations give lip service without life service, and they thought, I'm not going to do that. So you're not going to find a whole lot of hypocrites under the age of 18. They just, they don't have a stomach for it. However, in some way, that misses the heart of Jesus a little bit. Because Pastor Zach was talking at camp this week about some of the high school kids that he was calling who weren't signed up for camp. He was talking to them and saying, hey, why aren't you coming to camp? Why aren't you coming to camp? And he said he had conversation after conversation with kids that said, because I'm not living for God, and I don't want to fake it at camp. I'm not going to come because I'm not living for God right now. And I don't want to show up at camp and fake it. What they're saying is, I don't want to give lip service without life service, so I'm just going to wait. Now, that misses a little bit the heart of God. Because the heart of God would say to those kids who have lip service without life service, the call of Jesus to those who are practically denying him would be, come back to Jesus. Let him help you with that. I know you've only managed to get Jesus' name off of your lips and not into your life, but let me help you with that. We see as we look through this text that some people kind of separate and get relational distance. We see some practically deny. I think the biggest reason that people kind of find themselves separated from Jesus is discouragement, number three. The biggest reason, especially when I define this word, I think the primary reason that followers of Jesus find themselves separated from Jesus is discouragement. Look at verses 36 through 44. It says, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then he came back. He again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, so he left them. He went away once more, and he prayed the third time, saying the exact same thing. Now, what at first appears to us to be maybe laziness, maybe weakness, maybe a total lack of care, is revealed to be something totally different through the eyes of Luke. Remember, four people wrote, uh, books about the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And when you layer them on top of each other, we learn like the full story. And here's what Luke says about why they couldn't stay awake. It says in Luke twenty two forty five, when he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Their hearts were so worn out, they had no spiritual energy left to pour into Jesus. I think because this word is so well known in our language, we sometimes forget the definition of it. The word discourage means to remove one's courage, to remove one's strength in the face of difficulty. I think because we are so familiar with this word, we think this word is an emotion rather than an action, but the word discourage and the word discouragement is an action. Think of the etymology of the word disembowel. Is that something you feel or something that's done to you? 
when you, disem, when you get disemboweled, it's when somebody reaches inside of you and literally begins to pull out your large and small intestines. What we learn from scripture is that the things we go through in life want to reach into your soul and they want to disembowel your spiritual strength. They want to take it out of you. They want to disembowel your spiritual courage. It's not how you feel. It's what's happening to you and what it does to your spiritual strength. Some of you are in here today. You're not relationally distant. You're not practically denying Jesus, but you are simply so out of gas spiritually because life has taken all of your strength from you. Life has taken all of your courage from you. And you have found yourself separated from Jesus, not because you don't love him, but you are just worn out with sorrow from what you've been going through, and you have zero energy to pour into Jesus. This is the picture of these disciples. It's not that they didn't love him. It's not that they didn't want to. Their hearts were overwhelmed with discouragement. Parents, you need to understand how much culture is reaching into the soul of teenagers today and trying to disembowel them spiritually. You have to understand the action that culture's taking to reach inside students and pull out all the spiritual strength that they have. You know, every now and then, Grandpa would talk about how much easier we have it than he had it. Remember, he'd walk uphill to school both ways in a foot of snow, barefoot, and then he'd buy a Coke for a nickel and a candy bar for a dime. Like, like remember stories of Grandpa? Like, in some ways, in some ways, this generation has some things easier than our generation has. But I believe in all ways, spiritually, this generation has it harder than our generation had, especially these public school kids. Every day there's something reaching in, trying to disembowel their soul. Uh, my, my youngest nephew um, is a, uh, a youngster named Kwesi, uh, who lives with my little sister. He's my little sister's son in Chicago. His dad's from Ghana. Uh, my little sister Marie is a principal in Evanston, Illinois, and they live kind of in downtown Chicago. He's my youngest nephew, and uh, my mom picks him up from school every day. And she said last year, one day, he came out from school and he was just crushed. Uh, because he'd had a little girl at school who, like, for the past couple years in their class, like, it was kind of known that this little girl and him um, were, were like, like, a little bit cute on each other. They liked each other a little bit. Even though they were young, they were like a pair in a pack that had hung out for years. And she started asking Quest if, um, if he would want to hold her hand and kiss her. And he was like, you know what, I'm not ready for that yet. So he kind of backed away and was like, I, I'm not real comfortable with that. I just like being her friend. So she decided that she was going to become girlfriends with his best friend. So he comes out of school bawling because he had nobody to sit with at lunch because his quote-unquote girlfriend had decided she was going to be the girlfriend of his best friend, and now he wasn't invited to be at their lunch table anymore. And mom said every day for a week he'd come out to the car just bawling because he lost his friend and he lost his little girlfriend. And she said after a week everything changed. And he came out, and he was smiling ear to ear, and mom's like, what happened? And he's like, well, my friend, I don't know his name, was back at my table today, and we're best friends again, and everything's okay. And mom said, well, what about the girl? What happened? And he said, oh, she's a lesbian now. She has a girlfriend. So, we're, uh, so we're, me and my friend are good again. He's in fourth grade. Fourth grade. That's the world these kids are growing up in. It's not like the world we grew up in. And every day there's something that's reaching inside their soul, trying to trying to find whatever spiritual courage there might have been and just rip it out. Trying to find whatever spiritual strength there might have been and just rip it out. Listen to me, moms and dads. Knowing that that is true, it's not a debate. Like, you got to get your kids to church on Wednesday night. 
Because one of our primary jobs is to find all the spiritual strength and courage we can and to, like, stuff it back in. Or, like, we're surgeons. Every Wednesday night, we're trying to figure out how to put everything in their soul back together. Because we know on Monday and Tuesday, it's been torn out. And we know on Thursday and Friday, it's torn out. It's why you got to get your kids to church on Sunday. I can't tell you the number of families who I meet at the end of summer, at the end of this, who say, now that this is over, we're going to be back at church. Who I hear saying to me, now that something more important is not around anymore, we're going to get back to Jesus. It's like, that may have worked in the 80s and 90s. It's 2023, 2024 school year. You better get your kids to places where somebody's going to pour courage and strength in. Because they're living where people pull courage and strength out. Amen? Like, we got to do a better job of helping our kids who we know are going to be discouraged. If there's one thing I'm really excited about on Sunday morning, going to three services, at 11 a.m., both our middle schoolers and our senior high students will have a chance to go to basically student Sunday school at 11 a.m. at church. Our senior high students, for those who have practices and jobs and can't get there on Wednesday night, now going to have a Sunday option. Our middle school student ambassadors who can't get to extra Bible study because they're dependent on their mom and dad to drive them around, and all they got to do is show up for church, and they'll be able to do that. We have to help kids who are discouraged. What is the call of Jesus to those weary with discouragement? You may recognize the call. Come back to Jesus. Just come back to Jesus. Five times we're going to meet groups of people who've grown separated from Jesus. Five times we're going to hear Jesus say, come back. Number four is disloyalty. What separates us from Jesus? Spiritual disloyalty. Look at verses 45 through the first part of verse 50. It says, then he returned to the disciples and he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hours come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings, Rabbi. Kissed him on the cheek. And Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Let me give you a pop quiz in case you're wondering how Jesus feels about you right now. What does Jesus call his followers who've been living as spiritually disloyal? Anyone have the answer? Friend. Friend. See, I don't know what you think you are in the eyes of Jesus as one of his followers who's grown separated because you've been spiritually disloyal. I just know how Jesus talks to people who've grown separated from him. And he, and, he, <clears throat> and he tells Judas, do what you came for, friend. I'll be honest, my greatest hope and my greatest challenge are the same thing spiritually. When I look at the life of Jesus and I look at how Jesus treats Judas, my greatest hope is this, that when I fail people spiritually, and there's a line a mile long, if I haven't failed you spiritually yet, it's just because we have not spent enough time together. My greatest hope is that when I fail people spiritually, they'll treat me with the grace that Jesus treats me with. It's my greatest hope. Not that I have to be perfect, but that I have friendships with people who are gracious. It's my greatest hope. That when I get it less than perfect, people will be as gracious to me as Jesus is. However, my greatest challenge is being gracious to people who let me down. So it's weird because this thing I so desire from people is this thing that God's working on inside me so that I can learn to be as gracious to others as Jesus has been to me. This was a massive point of revelation at student camp this week for our students. Because on Wednesday night, 
Last week, I got to talk to our students about having a heart that was open to Jesus, and I talked about unforgiveness being one of the things that kept like the spirit of Jesus from flowing through you. And I asked our students if they had a pain in their heart caused by someone that they had not been able to forgive yet. I asked them to be willing to take a step to forgive someone who had hurt them so that God could begin to heal their heart, so God could begin to expand his presence in their life. And I asked our students to take the back page of their notebook and to tear it out. And I said, if somebody has hurt you and you've not been able to forgive them, but you want to because you're sick of holding on to it, I want you to write their name on a piece of paper. I want you to write what they did on a piece of paper. And I want you to come lay it on a stage. And student after student after student after student after student by the hundreds came and said, this is what's been hurting my heart. This is who's been hurting my heart, and I need to forgive them. More than that, I said, don't just tell Jesus. I want you to tell your leader. So then they went one by one, and I had them say, this is who hurt me. This is what they did, and I want to be able to forgive them. As we've walked through these and prayed for our students, do you know who finds their way onto the majority of these pages? Anybody? Parents. Something's happened between me and mom and dad. This caused a pain in my heart. But I want to forgive. I want to forgive them the way Jesus has forgiven me because I don't want to live with this pain. I want to experience healing. Um, I want Jesus to heal this hurt spot in me. But I know it's only going to happen if I will learn to be as gracious to others as they have been to me. Disloyalty is going to be a part of your spiritual walk. Jesus is going to be gracious and he's going to forgive you. What will be the call of Jesus to those who have been spiritually disloyal? It'll be this, come back to the friendship of Jesus. And, and that doesn't just happen so that we would live in friendship with Jesus. This happens so that when someone is disloyal to us in our friendship with them, and they come back and say, I'm sorry, we can say, come back into the friendship that we have. Jesus forgives and by receiving forgiveness, we actually learn how to forgive. And then finally, number five, spiritual disobedience will separate you from your relationship with Jesus. Look at verses uh, 50 through 52. Then the men stepped forward. They seized Jesus and they arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So we know it was the apostle Peter pulled a sword out. He was trying to cut a guy's head off. Probably the guy ducked. He just got his ear. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. That is not how I want you to live your life. Stop that. Put it back. Put the guy's ear back on. Peter put his sword away. He's like, that, we're not going to do that. The way you're living your life is not the way I want you to live your life. So um, let's stop and live life the right way. Another camp realization that I had this week is that you don't have to tell teenagers, and I'll say it this way, you don't have to tell teenage Christians, you don't have to tell Christians um, what they're doing that's wrong spiritually because they already know. If you're a follower of Jesus and the Spirit of God lives in you through the Holy Spirit of Jesus, when you, when you do bad, you'll feel bad. It's called conviction. So you, you don't really have to, with a group of students, you don't have to say, don't do these hundred things. Instead, with a group of students, you will say, as a follower of Jesus... The Holy Spirit will let you know when you're doing something 
that you shouldn't do. And then I said this as we walked through this point with our, with our kids. Um, and it was a big point Thursday night. I said, some of you are doing things spiritually, not only that you don't feel good about, but that you don't want to do. Here's what I said. Last year at camp, you realized this was wrong. You asked God to forgive you. You committed not to do it. You don't want to do it. Feel terrible when you do do it. Just can't stop doing it. Those things are called strongholds spiritually in our life. When Jesus so clearly reveals to my soul, as a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't do this. And I repent, and I say, Jesus, I'm sorry for doing this. And then I commit not to do it, and I don't want to do it. But then I do it anyway. Those things are spiritual strongholds in you that are going to take a little extra for you to work on. Because Scripture says that the power of God is mighty for casting down strongholds and demolishing strongholds. But you're really going to have to bring this to Jesus. You're going to have to tell somebody else. And I didn't have to tell the kids, here's a list of 20, pick yours. All I told the kids was, if you have something in your soul spiritually that as a follower of Jesus, you wish you didn't do. Last year, you said you were sorry for. You committed not to do. Every time you do it, you wish you didn't, but you can't stop doing it. That's called a stronghold, and this year at camp, I want you to come demolish your stronghold by telling someone and by telling God you're sorry and you need help. And once again, I ask him, take a sheet of paper, write down what your stronghold is, put your initials, put your stronghold, and say, God, as a Christian, I shouldn't do this thing, but I do this thing. I don't want to do this thing, but I can't stop doing this thing. I'm going to need help. And students didn't have to be told what to write. From eating disorders to pornography to cutting and self-harm, kids were like, I know as a follower of Jesus I shouldn't have to do this, but I've not been able to stop these things on my own. I need some help. So they came forward and they said, God, help me. And then they all went to their leader and said, here's my stronghold, and I need help. It was at the end of that message on Thursday that leader after leader after leader came up to me and said, would you ever give that at our church? Because it's not just people under the age of 18 that have spiritual strongholds. There's a lot of adults in our church who are doing things they know they shouldn't do, don't want to do, try to stop doing, can't do on their own. But they just don't have the courage to tell somebody that they need help. We look at spiritual disobedience and we learn that the Spirit of God puts inside of us what spiritual disobedience is so that we'll know. I told our kids this at camp. Some of the most emotionally miserable people in the world are Christians living in spiritual disobedience. Why? Because you ask God to do that to you. When you invite the Holy Spirit into your life, John 16 says, when you invite the Holy Spirit into your life, you literally are asking God, God, from this point in my life forward, when I do bad, make me feel bad. I don't know if you knew you did that when you became a Christian, but you did. When you became a Christian, you asked God to make you feel bad for doing bad the rest of your life. It's almost like you ask God to give you an allergy, a gluten allergy, and then you keep eating bread, and you're wondering, like, why you never feel, like, very good. Like, anybody have an allergy? Like, when you become a Christian, you literally are saying, God, I want you to make me allergic to this. And then when you do it, you'll feel it every time. I found out a few years ago, I'd never known this up until a few years ago, that I was um, allergic to avocados. I love Mexican food, but until a few years ago, I'd never really eaten guacamole. Then I was introduced to guacamole, and I liked it a lot. And after about a year of eating guacamole, one time I asked Danielle, like, does everyone's tongue swell up when they eat guacamole or just mine? Because it's, it's really good, but sometimes it's hard to breathe. And she's like, no, like, you're like, I'd never really had a food allergy until then. She's like, no, that's, that's, like, no, that's, don't, no, not everyone's tongue swells up. You should stop eating. So now I moderate it a little bit. I'll just eat a little guacamole, and when I feel the right side getting a little tingly, like, I'll know, stop before you can't breathe anymore. 
But like when you become a Christian, you're asking Jesus, make me allergic to sin. So when you sin, you're going to hate it if you're a Christian. But what do we do with that spiritual disobedience? We just let it run us right back to the heart of God. You see, the call of Jesus to those who have been spiritually disobedient is this. Come back to Jesus. There's a better way. Like, just eat queso, Christian. You don't have to eat the guacamole. There's a, there's a better way. The call of Jesus to those who have been spiritually disobedient is just come back to Jesus. There's a better way. Let me close by saying this. Why do kids come running back to Jesus every year at youth camp? I think there's only one reason primarily. Because they're told they're allowed to. Period. I think every one of them goes through the school year wishing that they could be close to Jesus. And something separates them, maybe one of these five things, maybe it's what separated you. You're saying, why at camp every year do kids come running back to Jesus? One reason and one reason only, because they're told they're allowed to. They're told that Jesus wants them to. And when they do, they're finally filled with the spirit of God that comes from the heart of Jesus. This will be the final word today. All of Matthew 26 is designed to help us understand the divine design of the heart of Jesus. This conversation, this three-hour window, the final conversation before the crucifixion is going to be about things that separate you. But when you're done, let's, let's hook up in Galilee. We see the divine design of the heart of Jesus in verses 53 through 56. Don't you think I can't call on my father and he won't at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And in that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, you didn't arrest me, but this has taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. What were the writing of the prophets? The writing of the prophets were this, the Savior will come and offer salvation, and you will reject him. You'll kill him. But he will raise from the dead and say, you can still come to me. I'll still accept you. That's the writing of the prophets. Jesus will come. You'll choose to live for yourself instead of him. But when you realize that isn't working, he'll still accept you and say, come back to Jesus. The divine design of Jesus is to meet you where you are. Maybe separated now. Maybe you've been separated forever. And to connect you to God through a relationship with him as your spiritual leader. That's the divine design of Jesus. Meet you where you are. Start today, connect you to the heart of Jesus moving forward. Billy Graham has been called one of, the, um, one of the 20 most influential people of the 20th century. For those of you know who's, who know his story, in 1941, he started telling people about Jesus and for more than 60 years traveled the globe telling people about Jesus and giving them an opportunity to respond to the heart of God. Almost every time for 60 years that Billy gave people to a chance to respond to the heart of God, the choir behind him would sing a hymn written in 1835 called Just As I Am. And the words of that hymn Billy called the strongest possible biblical basis for the call of Christ, that Jesus takes you right where you are and as you are and connects you to the heart of God. Here's some of the words of that song, Just As I Am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou bidst me come to thee O Lamb of God I come just as I am though tossed about 
with many a conflict and many a doubt. Fighting and fears within and without. O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, you will receive. We'll welcome. We'll pardon. We'll cleanse and we'll relieve. Because your promise, I believe. O Lamb of God, I come. This week, we spent an entire week in southern Illinois telling kids they could come to Jesus or come back to Jesus. And my promise to them was that if they would bring their moms and dads and aunts and uncles and grandmas and grandpas, I'd make it as clear to you as it was for them that you can come or come back. As a matter of fact, Jesus is not only not angry with you, he's been planning to meet you at Journey on August 6th since you walked away. He knew your bad day was coming before you did, and he planned to meet up with you after. But you've got to come back. In just a minute, we'll close as a congregation by taking communion together. Ushers, I'm going to allow you to go ahead and get in position. But before we do that, I want to give you an option today to decide, to respond. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, please hear the truth that you can be a follower of Jesus. If you will bring your sin and your pain and your hurt to him, lay it at his feet and let him be your leader. And if you've been separated from Jesus for any reason at all, you hear his heart tonight. Come back, come back, come back, come back, come back in every area this morning come back. What's God been saying to your heart? What do you need to do to respond? Would you bow your heads and pray with me before we take communion together as a church? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room, but hearts are open. If you're here today and you need to come to Jesus or come back to Jesus, just as you are, without one plea, just as you are, not bringing anything with you, you need pardon, you need cleansing, you need relief just as you are. If you're ready to come to Jesus or come back to Jesus from your heart to heaven, would you just tell him? It's called prayer. It's talking to the God of heaven. You don't have to talk out loud, but from your heart to heaven. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed, but hearts are open. If God brought you here today to meet up with him, to engage in relationship with him, whether you're coming or coming back, maybe you could pray something like this. You can repeat it after me. You don't have to pray it out loud. God hears the prayers of your heart. Just say, God, today I'm ready to come or come back to Jesus because I need you just as I am. God, I give you my heart. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my past. Heal me of my hurts. Lead me into my future. Today I come to Jesus or I come back to Jesus. And I thank you for your love, your forgiveness, your salvation, and your leadership. Today by faith, I choose to connect to Jesus and follow him again. With heads bowed and eyes closed all over the room. I'd like to pray for you if you prayed with me. Don't want to make, do anything that make you feel vulnerable. I'm not going to have you stand. I'm not going to have you come forward. But if you prayed with me, I'd love to pray for you. So how are we going to do that? In just a second, I'll count to three. And if you prayed with me, I'll just ask that you just raise your hand kind of quietly all over the room while heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'll have you put your hands down. I'm just going to pray for you as you begin or begin again in a relationship with Jesus. So if you prayed with me, can I pray for you on the count of three? Would you just raise your hand? Just let me know. One, two, three. Right now, just all over the room. Pastor Christian, I prayed with you. I just want to know. Keep them up for just a second. There's a bunch of you, so I'm going to count. I don't do this often, but one, 
two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Keep them up. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. That's just the section on my left. Twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five, thirty-six, thirty-seven, thirty-eight, thirty-nine. 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50, 51. I'm coming to the final section now. 52, 53, 54, 55. Keep them up. 56, 57, 58, 59. You can put your hands down. God, thank you for these 59s who today acknowledge separation but received an invitation to come back or to come for the first time. God, for those who said yes to Jesus for the first time, let them feel literally new life in their soul. Let them feel forgiven. I can't explain it, but I've experienced it. Let them do that too. Let them, uh, Jesus, feel like uh, they have a brand new start. Let them feel like you're with them. Again, not in a weird way, but a comforting way that the God of heaven knows me and he's watching over me and he's with me. And God, more than anything, let them lean into Jesus and become more like him. Thank you that the call of Jesus is after you have uh, drifted, after you've fallen, after you've struggled, after you've failed, after you bailed, um, I'll see you in Galilee. Thank you for an invitation to come and come back. Thank you for these 59 that have just said yes. As we today focus on Jesus through the Lord's Supper, Holy Spirit, just come and be a part of this place in a special way. In Jesus' name, amen.